Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, there she is. <laughs> right on cue. Well, what a start. What a start to the podcast there. The door is just open behind Darren Barker's right shoulder and his, uh, his young daughter Poppy has just appeared in the doorway because she's been chasing him around the house this morning, brandishing a buttered crumpet, trying to uh, trying to dab it on his top. But, um, well, we've never had a start like that before. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. This is Macklin's Take. Welcome to the latest episode with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. And our guest today, um, as you now know, is, is Darren Barker. And this has been a long time coming, this one. I, I say that a lot with uh, people we get on the podcast, but I can't quite believe it's taken us this long to do it. It's, it's, it's criminal, really. Uh, the reason is, the excuse is that we used, we used to see him around all the time, all week, around fight weeks. Um, things are different now. So we got complacent. We got complacent with his availability uh, and the coronavirus punished us for that complacency but uh we've we've set it right we set it right today because he is possibly even overqualified for Macklin's take because he was boxing at the same time as Matt they were at the same weight they very nearly boxed at one point uh they didn't quite retire at the same time but I think Matt would probably agree that they were kind of done at the same time because he said often before that the last couple of years of his career maybe he kept going when when um, when he shouldn't have, so they ran in quite kind of parallel parallel lines, really, and there's just all sorts of things we could get stuck into today. So let's start with the fight that never was. It was supposed to be top of the bill, I believe, of the Magnificent Seven in Birmingham, September 2010, on what was an absolutely packed card. The main fight, though, was. Was it Macklin against? It would have been back. It would have been Barker versus Macklin, would it not? Because you were you were defending your European title. Is that? Have I got I, the right? You know I'm deadly honest. It's it, it's all very hazy to me. You know, like it, it, I, like honestly, I don't know if that's because I'm thick or because I've taken too many shots. I just it's I can't remember it too well. 
which is not very uh, a very good start for this podcast, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like, I remember, obviously, obviously the rivalry to start with. Do you know what I mean? Like we was Matt. When did you turn pro? Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm the opposite to you, Dan. I've got like a freaky memory that freaks people out, but I can't remember where I put my keys. Do you know what I mean? So there's got to be something. There's got to be a part of the brain that gets smashed up, and that's the short-term memory or something. But I can like remember, you know, the mad stuff. But I turned pro in 2001 after winning the ABAs, and I remember being in Manchester supporting you, all you guys, yeah. when you won the gold at the Commonwealth Games. It's um, I think the year I won the ABA in 2001. You were you got beaten in a close one in the semi-finals in Liverpool. That was it. Tristan yeah. Davis beat me on a countback. But you were you were I think lightweight back then. I was like a welterweight. So obviously you grew and filled out. And we you know our careers passed uh, started to cross down the line. But it was uh, yeah. I, no, I remember it quite, it's a funny one because so yeah. So I turned pro before you. I blasted through. I had seven fights in ten months. I was flying. Then I had injuries, changed trainers, and it stagnated a little bit. And obviously, you turned pro then, good amateur, turned pro. I think you failed. Did you miss out on the qualifiers or something? The Olympics? Yeah, yeah. I had two two attempts, and yeah, lost out. Didn't go. So it was just the <laughs> obvious thing. I wasn't going to wait for another four years. So turned pro, and I guess you know, like you was the main man at the time. You know, so instantly turning pro, I've got my sights set uh, on you. You know, you're you're the governor. In, in the division so yeah it was just yeah I guess it didn't start off as a rivalry it was just when I started winning and obviously your, your supporters get carried away and they want to see you fighting the, the main man it just uh, it, look it's a shame it never happened but yeah that's the way it goes no I was going to say go on go on I was just going to say, in terms of if, in terms of why it didn't happen, it was it was an injury, wasn't it? It was a it was a, a rib injury, I think. Well, it, do you know what? It's quite it's quite fun. So so initially, really, when it kind of kicked in, I suppose I think Darren was Commonwealth champion. Oh, and then I won the British title. He was with McKenna, and I won the British title against Wayne Alcock in two thousand nine. Mm. And then Darren became my mandatory, and Mick Hennessy won the purse bid. Now, and I just so there's a few things going on here. So I'm, I'm not doing a Macklin tangent. I'm just giving a bit of back information <laughs> so that what I'm getting to makes sense. So I was British champion, beat Wayne Alcock, March 2009. Darren Barker was, I think, Commonwealth champion. And he ended up becoming my mandatory challenger. But in, in the meantime, just before this, I ended up, I got out, I got out my contract with Frank Warren when Sports Network went bump because of the Joe Calzaghe court case. And I ended up signing with Ricky Hatton Promotions. And I was going to be their first main event for the TV, which was going to be their first date at the end of September. In the meantime, there's a purse bid for me and Darren Barker. I'm British champion. And Mick Hennessy put in a big bid and won the bid. So this has thrown Hatton Promotions into absolute disarray because now they haven't got their main event for their TV. So Richard Poxon, I think, did a deal with Philip Fondue. And I think because Dimitri Pirog was mandatory to fight for the European title, but he got a step aside money and they wanted me to fight for the European title. And I was like, well, only if I get more money because that, that purse bid was pretty decent for Darren Barker. And actually, 
I want to fight him. You know, my, I knew it was a hard fight, but I fancied it. I believed in myself and, you know, I got my pride. But, you know, the Hattons were like, no, look, we do this. It's our TV. They would have been chaos for them. So, you know, they, they worked the deal with Pierre and then up my money and I ended up fighting Asakaini for the vacant title, vacating. And obviously, Darren then wins it, defends it. But, but we, we end up, because I vacated it, I got reinserted as number one. Not mandatory, but number one. So, anyway, fast forward twelve months. I've had the, I've had the, I've beat Asakaini, and I do a fight, a ten round non-title fight in Ireland. Bruiseman, of course, couldn't do the defense in the February. Go over to LA then after that, I'm sparring out there. Meant to box in April again, topping the bill, defending my European title. End up breaking my nose sparring, and had to had to pull out of that fight. And anyway, I come back. You know, the Hattons were, you know, not, not Ricky, but the promotional team were pissed off. We weren't really seeing eye to eye. Things were clashing. And I ended up vacating the title and buying back my contract. So I was a free agent then. But in that meantime, then, Darren steps in, fights for the vacant European title. I think it was against the Italian. No, no it was um, the Frenchman, uh, Belchicum. That's right. South Paul. Yeah, I think he was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then, so that was, but again, same thing, because I vacated, I got reinserted as number one. I go off to America, I'm training with Freddie Roach at the time, think I'm going to do a deal with Golden Boy, which I did do, and I had a great deal, and I was ready to sign. Winky Wright decides he wants to stay in retirement. Sergio Mora wouldn't fight me. So then I'm on to Barbara, I'm doing a deal with Barbara, I'm trying to get a deal done, and it just wasn't making sense, wasn't happening. I'm thinking, fracking hell. I've burnt every bridge here in Britain. <laughs> you know, I thought, I can't, if this doesn't happen with Golden Boy or Top Rank, what am I going to do? Duke Bella was on my case, but who was on about me, you know, being main event for these Broadway boxing shows, probably talking about $30,000. I'm like, you're fucking joking, aren't you? Anyway, I remember getting the text off Dean Powell, who'd been like, Mom, arch nemesis up to that point. You know, Glenn, how's things, Matthew? Hope you're well, blah, blah, blah. Frank is asking me to give me a call. I'm like, this is a lifeline. So when I get back from America, I go down, have a meeting with Frank, and he says, listen, you know, you're, you're, um, you're number one. You did this European title. I want to, you know, it, well, you know, give me the charm and all that first. Uh, you know, the prodigal son returns <laughs> and all that spiel. And no, at least we, had, we did have quite a quirky relationship. I did turn pro with Frank. So, you know, we had good times and bad times. And anyway, he says to me, look, I want to do a pay-per-view event. I want to build it around you. I think you and Darren Barker, I think that's a great fight. He said, I want to win the bids for that. And I want to build a show around it. He said, but, you know, I want you to sign with me, you know, if you win it or when you win it or whatever. He said, and I was like, all right, well, let me see. And I'm thinking, well, the people might be big. And, you know, you're thinking in your head, aren't you? So anyway, I didn't sign with Frank at that point. I took my chances, but he did win the bids. And he put the show on in Birmingham, like he's promised he would, at the NEC, which is literally two miles from where my mum lived. And um, it was a great card. And you look at the people on that card and what they all went on to achieve. Mm. It was a fantastic card from top to bottom. And, of course, the jewel in the crown was meant to be this long-awaited fight between uh, me and Darren Barker. I've well, I remember... Darren- <laughs> per- perfectly i remember i remember the the kind of yeah the the anticipation around it so when when it Darren, when it didn't happen did you did you just assume well this is going to happen at some point you know it's, yeah, I has- so. yeah i think so it was uh because it was a fight that we obviously both wanted um 
you know, we've, we grew up in the era of, you know, the Ben Newbanks and all that. So we was well aware. Well, certainly, well, obviously we both were, but I was... Yeah, because you remember, Darren, and when we were, we'd done that two-day, two-city press yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah, London and Birmingham, wasn't it? And it was like 20 years, you know, to the month or to, something yeah, like that, where right. the Eubank-Ben first fight happened at the NEC. Yeah, that was it. And it was just... Oh, I wanted to be part of one of those fights, you know. I, I'm not saying it was this, it was in the same sort of magnitude as as those guys, but still, you know, it was a it would have been a fantastic domestic dust up, you know, and it was something that we we both wanted. But yeah, in, in that one, I got an injury, didn't I? Then I I was injured and I was gutted. I was gutted, and it was it was at that point. I remember thinking. This is this game's hard. Do you know what I mean? This is a tough old sport. This because I remember turning pro and uh, in, with Tony Sims, and I remember Andrew Lowe, Steve Spartacus, and Dave Stewart. And I remember all those lads always injured all the time. And I remember thinking, you know, are they putting this on? Like, I, I can, I can three lads be injured so much. Um, and it's not until you get a little bit older. And I, I mean, I was still, you could say, somewhat of, of a prospect still. Uh, and I was already starting to feel the injuries, and I started thinking, "Flipping heck, this is uh, this is going to be a nightmare." But like you say, and I always did think, "Oh, the fight will happen at some point." You know, though I was gutted, the fight never happened, and I was getting a real buzz for for professional boxing at that point. You know, like Matt, you said there, the two press conference, and you're just getting a taste of the big time a little bit. And I thought, "This is this is great." You know, I'm, I'm loving this, um, but didn't happen but yeah always in the back of my mind probably not the, the back of my mind I think I always thought that's a fight that will happen soon you know I didn't think it would drag out or not happen and then of course there was there was Martin Murray at the same weight there was, there was Andy Lee at the same weight as well although Andy was based over in, in in the United States and when we look back on it now it seems absolutely amazing that that none of the four of you ever managed to get into the into the ring together. Were, were, I'll start with you, Darren. Were you close to fighting Martin Murray at any point or Andy Lee at any uh, point? I, I don't think so. There was always talk. Um, but it, obviously with, with Matt, it was actually signed and, and ready to happen. But it, it was never that close with, with any of the others. And to be honest, you know, though I used to look at uh, the fighters in and around the division and who I, who I could possibly fight, and obviously the domestic rivals. I kind of did. I just done. I got in the gym. I done my training, and I, and I just let Tony get involved with that. You know, I remember once he mentioned uh, about fighting. There was two two names, and one of the names was Jamie Moore. But it was when Jamie was well at the end of his career, and I, like, I remember just saying, "Tony, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever you think, I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I trust Tony." you know, so much. And I kind of just, though I was aware of who was, who was around, I just, I kind of just left it all to Tony, if I'm honest. I, you know, I trusted him so much. I knew I was never going to get uh, tucked up in any way. And I knew that Tony trusted me, and uh, trusted me as a fighter and believed in me as a fighter. I just, I was my own worst enemy, I think. I never believed in myself. And I think that's where Tony and me worked so well because, his man management was just like it was on point. He was he was so good. He he 
He knew when to put an arm around me. He knew how to get the best out of me. But I think as an individual, I was quite self-critical. And I didn't, I, you know, I knew I was a decent fighter, but I don't, uh, I just like, I think the way I uh, sort of thought about myself, my my output and my, or my outlook rather on my career was quite good because I just thought I'll take each fight as it comes and every step is a bonus for me. Every title was a bonus because I just didn't know how good I was. So, yeah, I just sort of left it all to Tony. And if Tony believed that I could, you know, if Tony believed I could fight someone and beat someone, then that was good enough for me. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health. Thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Matt, were you close at any point with Martin Burry or Andy? It was definitely Andy Lee, um, Brian Peters. Uh, I mean, there was lots of talk all the time. There was, there was. Um, I think that time when um, the Birmingham fight, when 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 Darren got injured, uh, Frank Warren offered it to Andy Lee, but obviously it was only like ten days' notice. So of course he turned that one down. Why wouldn't they? And then the um, he turned down an offer, a written offer from Brian Peters. I don't know when. I think that was back in like 2008. Uh, might be 2009. I think it was 2008. Um, and there was another one as well. Uh, the Ludi Bella. So the fight before I fought, when I fought Golovkin in the June, I'd lost, I'd, I'd lost to my team the March before and I'd beaten Alcine in the September. And that kind of put me back up there because Alcine was coming into that fight with a win over David Lemieux. And you know, Lemieux was a good fire, and I've knocked out seeing that in a round on HBO, so it kind of threw me back in there, and Lou had Lou had me and Andy Lee, and he had a date for May 11th, so he, you know, Lou was convinced that this fight was going to happen, so I was like, okay, all good, so we were waiting for it, waiting for it, and uh, anyway, it came, Lee, uh, Andy knocked it back. Now, I ain't saying Andy Lee didn't think it, when he was on song that he couldn't beat me, because I believe every fight I believe all four of us, where we were at our time, believed we were the best. And that's the nature of the fighter. But he, um, he'd he had a performance against... He'd, he'd, he'd been with Manny Stewart a long time. Manny had died. He'd let, he, and he was training with Adam Booth. and had one fight together. You know, and he really underperformed against a guy called Anthony Fitzgerald. There isn't in, isn't in Andy Lee's league. But he gave him a tough fight that night because Andy never performed. And, you know, Anthony Fitz bucks out of his skin. So... I think Andy's confidence wasn't exactly at a high and didn't want this fight at this time. He, he, I think he remember saying he was going through a period of, you know, change with a new trainer. So he didn't, he knocked it back. So I ended up then, that date fell on his head for me because there was no, I think another couple of guys turned it down and I think Lemieux might have actually, but there was a few like that mentioned and anyway, no fight happened. Anyway, then I ended up fighting Golovkin in the June. Um, so that was the Andy Lee. Martin Murray, the fight was talked about quite a lot because Neil Marsh 
was always banging the drum. But, you know, I think the problem with that was I was obviously signed into a contract with Ludwig Bella and I was fighting in America on HBO and Martin couldn't get into America at the time. So it was a bit of a non-runner. You know, there was talk. Neil Marsh made himself busy. You know, we're doing this deal on prime time. He was talking shy. Do you know what I mean? He was just, he was a clown, really, to be honest with you. But back then he was anyway. He's done all right now with a few fights. But back then he was probably learning and didn't know. But I was in a contract with Lou. So it was, it was a non-runner. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the one the one with Darren, especially Darren's on now, there, there was more to it. More came after that. So we didn't, we didn't fight that time in Birmingham. I obviously won the vacant European title. Then I defended it. So when, so when, when Darren pulled out that time, I remember Frank ringing me up saying, I just got back the day before from Los Angeles. And he says to me, I've been out, you know, I've been out there six weeks and he used to me, if you heard the crack of Brian Peters, my manager, had just rang me and told me. I said, yeah, Brian's just told me. And he's like, listen, don't, listen, don't worry about it. I'm going to work on it. He goes, and you know, he'll either vacate or I'll get him stripped or we'll, we'll, we'll sort something out. He said, but I promise you, you'll fight for that European title. So anyway, he rings me back about an hour or two later, Frank does, and he says, listen, the title's vacant. You will fight for the European title, he said. And he said, I'll give you more money than you were going to get for the Barker fight, but you got to sign for another fight with me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, so how much and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we, we, we agreed those terms. And uh, so I had the fight against an unknown Georgian, and I, do you know that fight in Birmingham? I tell, you know, you, you talk about, we, we talk regularly about fighters not getting up for it, performing because they don't have enough fear. They're not, ner- nerves are good. They make you sharp. I remember that day thinking, I was nervous that I wasn't nervous. I thought, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to buck shit here. I know I am because I can't, I'm not, I should be more up for it. And I'm not, even though I was super fit and I trained hard and sparred well. You know, I was focused on Darren Barker, of which I was massively up for, where this guy now from Georgia, never heard of, been beaten a couple of times. Do you know what I mean? It was a difficult one. So I won the fight. He didn't come out, I think, for the sixth round. It was like, it was just an anti-climax. Do you know what I mean? But I had a week or two off, and I was back in the gym, and I trained for the fight in uh, in Liverpool against a guy called Ruben Grant. So, you know, mandatory defence of the European title. And um, anyway, I, went, I, went, I won that fight. But um, I don't know how it happened, but going into that fight, I hadn't signed another fight with Frank Warren, even though at this point I was totally, in my head and my heart, committed to signing with Frank and doing a long-term deal. I'd gone to America. I'd met with Golden Boy. I'd signed, you know, agreed the contracts. It fell on its ass. I'd met with Barrow, even about fighting in Mexico against Rubio. As a fight, let's see how we get on. I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> then it was like Ludibelli was talking about thirty thousand dollars fighting on board my boxing. I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> I'm not nearly thirty now. I'm pro ten years. I want to start. You know, I'm hit. I'm hit a level where I'm earning money. I don't want to start coming way back down. So I remember thinking, nah. You know what? America's great and that, but you're one of many. Frank Warren, you look at his stable. I'm, I'm high up the pecking order there. You know what I mean? I'm going to be more... So I had every intentions of signing a long-term deal with Frank. Like, I wasn't being tricky. I think it was just the way things played out. We, we never got round to it. Of course, then we had the fight in the Liverpool, which was a couple of weeks before Christmas. I had the, I, I, I should have pulled out that fight. I was ill the week off. But anyway, I went through it, got through it, got the win. And I was meeting with Frank in the... Uh, I met with Frank in the January and... We, we hadn't signed a contract, but we were, we, were, you know, we were going to, and I was completely on board with that idea. 
And I went down on the Friday to meet with him. And we did, we did, it was a bit of a strange meeting. I didn't, nothing, it was, I remember thinking, I'm going down and he's going to say, listen, this is the deal, and blah, blah, blah. And it didn't. And I just thought, that was weird. You know, you're driving home, I thought, that was weird. That was a weird meeting. Was he just feeling me out and seeing where I was? Was he trying to lower my expectations, mind conditioning? I don't know. But anyway, it, the, the bid was on the Monday. And uh, because him and Mick Hennessy hadn't come to a deal. And, you know, Mick, I think, had lost his TV deal at this time anyway. And, you know, it was just a foregone conclusion in my head that he was going to do the deal with, um, with uh, you know, we were going to get the deal, but he was going to win the bid. <coughs> so on the Friday, so yeah, on the Saturday night, <laughs> I'm at home in the house, I'm on, fa- I'm on Facebook, and this one used to be on Facebook on the uh, laptop before the, the apps on the iPhones, and Robert Diaz, who was a mate of mine from the days of Hatton Boxing in Vegas and everything, uh, was online, and I'm just going, ah, how's things, Robert, blah, 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 and he goes, um, yeah, he said, all oh, good, because what's happening, so, oh, because I've seen your last fight, blah, blah, you know, whatever we were talking, anyway, then he says to me, you know, what's your situation now, and I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not under current of the contract, but I'm about to, it's the first bit on Monday, and then, you know, I'm going to sign a deal with Frank, and he says, well, listen, he said, what if I can get you a good deal before then, with Golden Boy, he said, Winky Wright's back, and he wants to fight again, so I'm like, well, he wouldn't pull out twice, would he, Winky? You know what I mean? <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay. So anyway, on the so on the Monday morning, on the Sunday night, you know, he because LA is eight hours behind, he comes back and hits me with a deal, or and it, or he gets Brian, he hits Brian with the deal. So, so Brian gets in touch with him. So it was a really good deal, you know. And it, it's exciting, isn't it? You're going out to fight Vegas against Winky Wright. If you win, you're going to get this much. If you win that, you win this much, and you realise then you're definitely going to get a world title shot, Golden Boy. Powerhouse, but on the Monday morning, Brian Peters rings me and says, "Have you heard the news?" I said, "What?" He said, "Mick Hennessy has won the bid, and it was a massive bid, like it was like something like three hundred and fifty grand or something. It was like it was never going to happen. Do you know what I mean? But I think he loses like five or six grand uh, if he doesn't go through. So he probably thought, "Fuck it, if I lose, I lose six grand, but keep a bit of barring power." I think Darren was out of contract. I mean, I don't know Darren's business, but I'm, I'm, I'm from the outside looking in. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, he ended up leaving after this anyway. So obviously Mick had lost his TV deal. His world was probably crumbling. Mick Hennessy couldn't stand me because I never turned pro with him in 2001. I couldn't stand him, by the way. And uh, because, you know, Robert was my hero and I wanted to turn pro. I thought Mick ruined that relationship. But anyway, back to this one. So I... Mick has won this deal, which I, which I know is not going to happen. And I'm thinking, I've got this deal off Golden Boy here, which is a great deal. And I'm thinking, I don't want to, but I am, I did commit myself to Frank. And we'd had that chat and in my head and heart, I was going with Frank and I was like, I felt like in a bit of a situation because <laughs> I thought, I definitely don't want to burn my bridge with Frank, you know, but I don't want to sit around and be a hostage to Mick Hennessy. Well, he fucks me about on this fight, which isn't going to happen. And I've got this deal with Golden Boy. You know, the fuck, fuck it. I have ever found myself in this situation again, you know? But anyway, so I go down and see Frank. I thought, I want him to hear it from me. Do you know what I mean? So I've got, I've got the train down to London. And he was actually in the tribunal somewhere in um, Chancery Court. Is it Chancery Lane where they have the tribunal? Chancery Lane, yeah. And he, and he was with Royal Rose or something. So I went, oh, anyway, I meet him. I said, listen, Frank, I said, I've come down because I want to, you know, we've had a lot of chats over the years. We're, we're, you know, our relationship's been a bit quirky. I've been with you, I've been with you, you know, back and forth. So I said, look, what's happened is 
I said, Golden Boy have been in touch over the weekend and have offered me a deal. They want me to fight Winky Wright. I said, but obviously, you know, when I said I want you in my committee to you, I am. I said, so, look, you know, obviously you've lost this deal now. So Mick Hennessy's won this deal. And I don't want to get fucked about for six months waiting for Mick Hennessy for a fight that's probably never going to happen. You know, I feel like I've already lost two years of my life to Darren Barker and Mick Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So then he's gone. So he's gone, all right, all right. Well, listen, let, 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 let's use this to our advantage. He goes, let, let, let me speak to them. I said, all right, well, I'll ask them. So I spoke with Robert Diaz. I said, listen, Frank Warren wants to do the uh, speech about the deal. And Robert just said, flat, Matt, no. He said, listen, there's the deal. You know, the deal's with you. You know, we don't need, for no disrespect, but we don't need Frank Warren. This is a, you know, a messy deal. So anyway, I ends up, I ends up, so this is a mad one, actually. You might remember this, Darren. So I'm the third, so I'm back and forth with Frank. And because the contract isn't signed here yet, by the way, with, uh, with Golden Boy. It's agreed, but it isn't signed. So we've agreed him, we're waiting for it to sign and a few little things back and forth and my lawyer's on it and Brian Peters is on it. And then it was a Thursday night. I remember going to the gym, uh, doing a bit of a run. I thought, you know, get back in shape. I've got ages, but I'll start shedding the weight. I've been on the piss over the Christmas and that. And uh, anyway, I'm in the house. A mate of mine comes round um, because the girl he was seeing was a mate of my sister's and she was doing her hair. Anyway, he comes in, he comes in. So... She, this, his birdie scene was having a glass of wine or whatever. So he says, yeah, sure, we have a glass of wine. So I says, yeah, go on then. So we have a glass of wine. We have two, we have three, we have four. We end up leaving there. I'm in a tracksuit and a cap. I've been in the gym. We end up in some locking in some booze or somewhere. We end up going into a strip club in town. And anyway, there was, this kid had beef with someone that was in there. There was a commotion. And I end up getting smashed with a champagne bottle on the back of me and got 20 stitches. So... <laughs> Oh, do you remember this, Darren? Yeah, do I do. So, I've, so obviously, next, that, I mean, so I've obviously got, gone to hospital in the morning, got 20 stitches, and they couldn't even give me the stitches till like six o'clock in the evening because I was so drunk. So by the time, by the time I got lost my phone, everything, so by the time I got home, my mum goes to me, you know, are you all right and all that first, obviously. But then she's saying to me, listen, Brian Peters hasn't stopped ringing because he, num- he had my mum's number. I'd lost my phone. He said, uh, you, you need to ring him straight. So I get, I ring Brian off my mum's phone. I said, what's happening? He said, listen, you know, we talked about what had happened. They said, you're all right, that's great. He said, look, he said, uh, Cameron Duncan has been putting pressure on Golden Boy saying, why the fuck is Matt Macklin, some guy who's not even signed with Golden Boy, getting this fight with Winky Wright and Sergio Mora isn't, he was Sergio Mora's manager. So Brian said to me, Robert said, if you don't go in, if you don't, basically, if you don't sign this deal now before whatever, four o'clock LA time, deal's off the table. So I remember going into my sister's work office, printing it out, signing it, scanning. So I didn't, I weren't. Andy, you know how technologically illiterate I am. And this is going back yeah, 10 that, years. That, that was a major challenge for you, Macklin. Major, like that was, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, we've gone in, signed the deal, sent it back. And then, you know, ended up saying to, giving Frank a ring on the Monday thing and said, look, you know, and, and he was like, listen, how are you? What happened? And blah, blah. I said, oh, this, that. So look, I've signed that deal anyway. So he was like, oh, okay. Um, anyway, that, 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 so that was, that was, you know, me, the, me and Barker's story hadn't finished in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> Tennessee won that bid then in the January and fucking, yeah. Anyway, 
So I ended up wanting to do, and, and it was a mad one because actually, I, I, I agreed that Golden Boy deal, but um, didn't even end up actually signing with them because Winky. No, that was a few weeks later or a few months later. Winky Roy pulled out again, pulled oh, out lovely. again, and I'm like, and I remember Frank ringing me on a Friday night, pissed off, he was drunk, and he's saying to me. Do, do you hear the news? Do you hear the news? He fucking pulled out again. See, Blaney, give me the, you know, the speech. He said, every time you fucking do something on your own, it turns to shit. Blah, 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 blah. He said, I want you to reflect over the weekend. Never think about everything you've done in your career. He said, and then on Monday, you ring me and either you're in or you're out. He said, no, you're out, you're out, no problem. He said, but, you know, none of this half in, half out. You either commit to me or you don't. So, you know, I rang him on the Monday. Um, but I won't go into that one because we'll be having this all night. We want to talk about Darren and me and, and Martin and Andy and that. But anyway, it, it was just a mad situation, really. I think, you know what, Darren, when I think back, it just wasn't meant to be. Nah, it seems that way, mate, doesn't it? Well, that, that, that story kind of illustrates perfectly just how ridiculously complicated professional boxing is. So on that note, when you turned pro, Darren, we talk to fighters about this all the time because you go out of the amateurs, particularly if you're a, a top amateur and you're just into a completely, completely different world. I mean, how did you, how did you find the whole thing? Because I mean, if Matt had signed with Hennessy, then obviously you would have been the stable makes the pair of you. And, and you know, how did you, how did you find making all those decisions and just the difference easy. between the two codes? It, it was so easy for me. It's a complete, the complete opposite to Matt's, if I'm honest. I I met Tony Sims down at Repton a year before I turned pro. Um, and, um, you know, I was doing well as an amateur. I uh, won the Commonwealth Games. I uh, was travelling around representing England. And, you know, I was introduced to Tony. Um, they leased me a car. I'll never forget it. It was a blue Mini. And... Uh, it was just with nothing. We didn't sign nothing. He just said, "Look, there's the car. When you're ready to turn pro, just come talk to us first. Um, missed out in the Olympics. Uh, sat down with Tony, and that was it. You know, I, I, I signed with him, and um, it was. It just becomes so. E- it was so easy for me. The, what I will say is that just quickly on the difference between the amateurs and the professional game. The first thing I noticed was how lonely it was. You know, I was on my own. Where I was down at, uh, whether it was Sheffield, Crystal Palace, wherever, with the England team, there was always somebody there. You were your mates, as you know, Matt. You know, you get on so well with all the lads. They're all bang on. And the same with Repton. I had, you know, one of my real good mates was Danny Appy. You know, he was my roommate in the Commonwealth Games and he was down the club all the time. So it was, you know, I was with a club. Do you remember me carrying Danny Appy back to the hotel? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. That was that was a messy one, that mate. I'm telling you. After the Commonwealth Games final, flipping it. Like I, I, I was. I just turned twenty that summer, and I'd only been drink. I only had my first drink when I was eighteen, and uh, I hadn't really drunk much because I was boxing so much, going here, there, and everywhere. Oh, mate, what I had the, the most horrific hangover ever. It was bad. But I remember seeing Danny the next morning and I, and I thought he'd been beaten up by about 15 geezers. He looked in such a bad, <laughs> such a bad state. Um, but yeah, like I just remember it being so lonely. But as far as decision-making was concerned, I just, I just put all my trust into Tony, you know, um, and it proved... 
it proved the right thing because he, he you know he didn't he never he never put me wrong not once you know um when it comes to leaving Mick like Matt said Mick lost his TV and we I I don't even think I ever signed with anyone I don't even think I signed I, I must have signed with Eddie but it was all just on, on a handshake and you know uh a lot of trust and you know Tony I think sort of uh, sort of demanded respect and people respected Tony and we just, they all, you know, I, I never felt like I was ever in any danger of getting uh, taken for a ride. And yeah, so we left Mick signed with, I think, I think actually Tony was trying to get some TV, a couple of dates for himself because he had a good uh, stable at the time. That wasn't possible. Um, I think the promoters with Sky at the time were, you had the prize fighter with Eddie. Uh, Ricky, I think, had a deal. I think that was it. I think that was it. And anyway, so there was no uh, option for Tony to get any dates. So I think Adam Smith actually said to Tony, why don't you speak to, to Eddie Hearn? And the rest is history. Time with Eddie. Um, and that was it. But other than that, I think the only other time I kind of got involved with any sort of matchmaking or anything like that was when... I had a little, you know, just before the Martinez fight, there was a little bit went on on Twitter. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm talking to Tony about this fight. You know, should, should we do it? You know, should we, should we jump in there and fight him? Uh, but other than that, it was all... I just put, left that, all that to Tony. So, so what, what, one thing there though, you you did you talked to me about this a few times, and it's it, it is very entertaining. Um, you say you were lonely, but I mean you weren't that lonely because you had Frotch, you had Frotch. He was he was your stable mate. You know you had the, you had the deep joy of going and sparring Frotch. And I remember you just you, you you could tell it, but I remember you saying to me that Frotch was just a complete nightmare to the point where you reckon if he's standing in his kitchen or, or anywhere and he hears a bell, he'll turn around and knock out the nearest person. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. To him. Yeah, it was I, I remember it was it was such I, I, what I will say is the sparring that I've done with Carl took me on to another level, without a doubt, you know, uh, success, breed success and all that, blah, blah, blah. There's another reason why I've done well as an amateur. All the great sparring I had at Repton um, took me to another level. And it was the same with Carl. But I remember having to, obviously, Carl was the main man at the time. And we used to have to drive to Hackney. It weren't that far from me, really, uh, to go and spar with him. And I remember getting in the car every single, every single time I sparred with him. I'd get in the car and I'd be thinking, right, how can I get out of this bar? But like, what's my excuse? And then you get a little bit further and I'd be thinking, nah, nah, I can't say that. No, nah, I had the flu last week. No, nah, I can't do that. <laughs> get a bit closer. And then before you know it, you pulled up and you parked up. You got your head guard on and the bell goes. You, you know, you just get on with it. But there was, there was one occasion that, They'd moved actually this time. They was at a gym on uh, Curtin Road um, near the city, sort of Shoreditch way. And 
same thing. I'm, I just thought, I don't fancy this. I don't fancy it. I don't fancy it. And then I'm there. I'm in the, I'm in the gym. And I see Carl and there's loads of TV cameras. So straight away, I've gone, oh, fuck's sake. It's all I need. Cole, sparring with Carl, the, the, you know, the, the best of times is terrible. But with cameras uh, on him, this is going to be a nightmare. He's going to really try and impress and knock my head off. And, you know, I, I don't really give myself a pat on the back that often. But sparring with Cole, you know, I did numerous, you know, we're talking double figures, 10, 20 times. I've done 12 rounds with Cole, you know, in the gym, 12 rounds sparring with Cole, which is, it was so hard. So hard, but this occasion I've walked in. There's TV cameras, it's soccer AM. He's on soccer AM and they're filming a piece. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, no. <laughs> Cole comes over to me, he comes over to me, he goes, Right, Dad, I guess that cameras are here. He goes, What we do is we have a nice, easy spa. I'll go, you go, I'll go, you go. Nice and easy, no tempo to it. Lovely. So I thought, I've had a touch here. This is blinding, brilliant. I, I proper trust him. I thought, blinding, he, you know, he ain't going to go out. It's the cameras are here. He's not going to take liberties. The first bell goes, and I swear to you, it was like someone had said to him, if you stop Barco in the first round of this bar, you'll, we'll give you a million quid. He fucking bit down on his gum shield, and he's fucking, <laughs> he's winging away, he's frying shots, and I'm fucking holding on for dear life. I think at one point, he had his arm on me, backing on the rope, and he's loading up with a right angle. <laughs> Honestly, the, the geezer's an absolute nutcase like a uh, madman um but he, he was you know as you know cole's great comedy great comedy um we went to we went to la once before he was supposed to be on the bill i forget who the opponent was when howard eastman fought bernard hopkins and um there was always talk <laughs> there was always talk that um frocks was tight I always remember everyone saying, oh, he's tight, he's, he's tight as arseholes, Frotch. And uh, I remember getting to LA, I was there, I was sharing a room with Matthew Furwell, who was also with the, on, uh, with Mick. But he was... Oh, Matthew Furwell a lot at Crystal Palace. Yeah, he's alleged Matthew's top man. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, bang on, from Burma, he was at the Fisher, like top, top man. Um, I used to spar with him a lot. So I'm his roommate. So anyway, I've got, I'll get to LA and I'm... I'm I'm walking around with Frotch and, you know, we're having a good time, walking around LA and Frotch is going, every time we went for a coffee or went for food, he goes, I'll get this, I'll get this. Almost to the point where I thought someone might have said to him, you're a tight ass. And he kept buying everything. He quite, he, I would, he wouldn't let me put my hand in my pocket. And um, this went on for about four days. He just kept going, bah, 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 I'll get it, I'll get it, I'll get it, I'll get it. All of a sudden, his opponent pulls out and he fights off. So he goes, he rang me, he goes, Dad, come, come, come down, we'll, we'll go for something to eat. For the next two days, anywhere we went, I had to buy it. He's going, no, you can get this. He goes, I've got the dinner. He goes, you can get this, I've got the coffee. Go on, you can get this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, you know, Carl, Carl was funny, but yeah, he was, uh, it, I, you know, we, I was lucky to be part of that sort of promotion at the time where there was some good lads around, but I, I, yeah, I didn't, uh, didn't enjoy sparring with him one bit. Yeah, he was he was he was famous for Oxford. I don't even know if this is true, but the story emerged that he got his teeth whitened on Groupon, um, <laughs> uh, and everybody just loved that. Everybody loved that. Everybody just thought that's pure froch. Um, but yeah, he is great fun. He is great fun. He, he's not how he comes across. He's he can take a joke. You can you can have you can have a lot of fun with him. Absolutely. I, I remember another trip you uh, a sparring trip you told me about with with another top super middleweight was Kessler. Um, 
and you talk about the loneliness of, of of being a fighter and that I think that that kind of paints that picture doesn't it and Matt's done a lot of this where you know that was a tough trip wasn't it over to over to Denmark yeah. to spar him long days and real hard sparring sessions yeah to be honest there was a harder one before that I was a novice pro and I fight I went to Copenhagen uh no Airhus in Denmark <clears throat> Two weeks on my own, no one. Two weeks on my own. I sparred with this guy called Raider Zamzam, flipping it. He was good. Um, that was tough. But going out to Kez, uh, spar with Kezza was that was one week in Copenhagen. It was brutal. Um, it wasn't long after my brother died, I think, and I was getting back into boxing and the opportunity come up. And I, I went, yeah, of course. And I don't even think I was getting that much. About five hundred quid or something like that. I don't think it was bundles, considering who I was sparring with. But it was just great for my own development. And I remember going out there and the first spa, he's a lovely bloke, Mikel, and I still talk to him now because obviously I'm good mates with Joe and Joe and Mikel keep in contact. And we, me and Joe went to, to Denmark. To, uh, Joe was uh, out there to surprise him for some award he got. But I was, um, I was sparring with Mikel that first session. And I done, to be honest, Matt, I've done really well. Like I, I really held my own. Um, and he, he was sticking it on me, but I, I really, you know, if it, if it was if you're scoring it, which I never looked at sparring like that, but you know, it was nip and tuck, not, not much in it. Well, the, the second spar was a completely different kettle of fish. He, he, like, he, he brought his A game, he made me get on the scales because one, he didn't believe I was middleweight. He said, Let me check your weight, let me check your weight. Because <laughs> uh, I, like, I was never, I was quite big thing because I, you know, I was carrying a bit of weight, but I'm, you know, I'm near six foot. So I was quite, you know, I must have looked quite big. He's going, get on the scales, get on the scales. But the worst thing about this spa is my dad and uncle had turned up. So that I was on my own and then they turned up. But they're in, they're in the corner, this quiet gym. And the spa's going on. And they're going, go on down, go on down, one, two, down, go on down. Go on. As if it's a fight. Not giving me instructions, saying like, jab, move, step, blah, blah, blah. He's going, go on down, go on down, go on, one, two. I'm going back to the corner. I'm going, dad, you're killing me, mate. Honestly, you're killing me. Shut up. Please, shut the fuck up. You're killing me. Um, but yeah, we've done a few more spars after that. And it, that it, the last punch of the last spar, Mikel's gone, I can't remember what shot it was. He's gone, bang, right on the top of the head there. And I've done that funny dance. And um, credit to him, he, he didn't try and finish me off, which probably Cole would have done. He sort of... <laughs> He held me up, and, and that was it. But the last shot, the last uh, last round of the last bar, was all I was gone. I was. So there's there's there's, there's a few other things I'm, I'm I'm keen to get to. Um, so you're both boxed Sergio Martinez, and do you think that maybe as a fighter he doesn't quite get the recognition that that he deserves in that kind of middleweight pantheon? Because before him there was Hopkins, and then at the same time, and then. After him, if you like, there was there was Golovkin and, and and fighters like that. I mean, that when you both fought him, he was, you know, he was a top top draw fighter. I mean, how how was that experience? Yeah, incredible, incredible. Like I say, all sort of happened on Twitter. And then the next thing, it was like a whirlwind. Speaking with Tony about it, then Eddie was on the phone and said that the fight can happen. And you know, it was a big payday. It's four hundred four hundred thousand dollars to fight him. Well. At that stage in my career, like I wasn't, I wasn't massively thinking about the money. If I'm honest, it was like I, I want to fight him. Like I don't, I have no idea I'm going to get on. Going back to myself, talking about myself before, you know, like I, I just weren't sure how good I was. I thought, well, look, I'll find out how good I am now. You know, he's he's the main man, so I'll, I'll find out exactly how good I am. 
um, I'm on a plane, I'm on upper class on Virgin, flying out to New York with Eddie and It was just like, I thought, this is, I've cracked it. This is brilliant. Um, on a rooftop, I can't remember what rooftop it was in, in New York, having the press conference. I remember we had to do the head to head and uh, he kept laughing. He, he couldn't keep a straight face, Martinez. And uh, which made me keep laughing. And we, it took about 10 minutes to get this one photograph of me and him looking without laughing. Um, uh, and, and then the fight itself, the whole build-up, it was just, um, it was, I have real fond memories of, the, of all of it because it made, you know, it made me realise where I had to be to, to, to even try and compete at world level again. It just made me understand... Um, yeah, the importance yeah. of managing those 12 rounds, just not going gun ho like a lunatic sort of and not managing the rounds. Like he just knew when to turn a screw, you know, turn the screw and just sort of put his foot on the gas and, and get going. And just I just learned an awful lot. But what I do take away from that is when the dust settled and because I, I, if I'm honest, I, I, I was very close to retiring and I think I probably did say to Tony, that would do me, you know, British, Commonwealth, European, uh, like that, that would do me. I'd like I'd be more than happy with that. Um, but as the dust started settling, I thought, do you know what? You know, if I would have believed in myself a bit more, I'm not saying I would have beaten him. I'm not saying that, but I think I could have done better and I didn't do bad. Um, so I started thinking, well, look, he'll go down as one of the middleweight greats one day or middleweight legends of at least future hall of famer i'm, I'm no doubt and uh what that? it can't get much harder than him and you know that's that's what i took away probably that 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 defeat was what after a bit of time was the reason i carried on Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. I remember that fight. It was in Atlantic City. I was at it. Because I remember uh, at the weigh-in, your mum came over to me. And yeah. I said, when we were chatting and that. And I remember thinking, I can't remember what I said it to her. And I was thinking, I was going to say to her, I listen, you know, me and Darren fight. Obviously, things get said, don't like, you know, we just, it's one of them, and it because, you know, she's such a nice woman. And then yeah, I thought, yeah. she, she always talks highly of you, always. I didn't want her to think that, like, you know, you know what I mean? We, you know, so, yeah. but, um, because I actually, I'd moved out there to America, then I'd signed with the better in the summer after the Stern fight. And, uh, so we were, I went over there, I moved over there and went, went, went to that fight. You did do well in that fight. It was a close fight. You, 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 I think you broke his nose and, you caused him a lot of trouble, you could see. Uh, and he just caught up with you at the end. A bit like me, um, he, he, he just caught up with me in the end. I mean, my fault with my, my Sergio was was close. Going, going out for the 11th round, I remember being... Well, you, you don't know what it was. We found out afterwards and the cards, I was three up on one card, which I didn't think yeah. I was, but 
I was around down on the other two, which I thought was about right, around here yeah. or there. Um, and then I suppose I thought, in my head, I'm thinking, I need these two rounds. You take chances and, you know, I've got nailed a bit. That's the way it goes. But, yeah, no, Martinez was tricky, man. He was an all- I remember when he was fighting Pavlik because um, I remember saying to uh, Buddy McGurk, are you, you know, what do you think with Pavlik? He'd be too big for Martinez. He says, nah, man, I think Martinez just box his head off. He'll just move around him. He goes, Pavlik, you know, you don't want to stand in front of him. You stand in front of him and have a fight with him. You're playing yeah. his hand. You move and box him. He struggles. And I was thinking, and I'd never really thought of fighting Pavlik that way. Because obviously I couldn't do that that way. So mm. I thought, yeah, maybe. Anyway, he did beat him. And then you boxed him. And then I fought him after that. But when I searched, I mean, as you said there, you were laughing with him. Is it Sergio Martinez? He's a gentleman, do you know what I mean? He's a, he's a great fighter and a great fella. And, mm. you know, and, and, and listen, as, as Darren is and, and Martin Moore and Andy Lee and all the lads. And, you yeah. know, there's one thing when we had that fight, the gloves are rough on Sky. I do think sometimes, you imagine, well, I don't really think it now, but I have thought it in the past. If when, when we were all around that time, there was no money at Sky, the budget for boxing just was poor, it wasn't there. And then, so when what happened then was, I ended up signing with Bella. You know, Martin Murray couldn't get into America, but he ended up signing with this guy in South Africa. Obviously, Darren was with Eddie. You know, Andy was with Lou, but, you know, maybe that could have happened, but it didn't happen. Rick, what would you think if that, if we'd have been, if that crop, all four of us had been around, if 2009 or 10 had been 2015, 16, let me tell you, me, Darren Barker, Martin Murray and Andy Lee, would have been fighting. We ready would have got one of the titles vacant, and we would have been fighting each other in rematches and trilogies and round robins on pay per view, and we would have been having it off. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, no, no, that, that... And, and there'd have been wins, and there'd have been losses, and there'd have been rematches because yeah. the reality was, I think all four were well, were genuinely world class fighters. Yeah. And, and well matched, I think. If we would have all got in there, I think styles would have gelled. When I look at all of us stylistically, I think they would have all come together. I, I really, really believe that. Um, yeah, I do. I, I, I just think they would have gelled every, every single one of us with either fighter. It would have just, it would have, they would have been brilliant fights. I don't, I don't regret not fighting you or the others. I certainly don't regret fighting you or the others. But um, would I? Would I would I have liked those big domestic dust dust ups? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It would have been brilliant. It would have been brilliant. But it's just it's been brilliant. Sat back as a as a fan. You know, talking about that Martinez fight. I think early on in my career, if that fight would have happened with you and him, I probably would have been thinking, ah, go, like go on, Martinez. You know, being when you're such a you you got your own. So you just tunnel vision a little bit when you're boxing. But later on, you fighting him, I remember really, really wanting you to win. Not for my own, my like for a potential uh, opportunity to fight you in a big fight for a world title, but genuinely because I wanted a fellow Brit to go out there and, and do the business. So when it came down to it, though, you did, you, you did get that. You did get that world title and, and, Something I've 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 always meant to ask you about that actually, but I've never quite got round to it. Is that when you when it's been a long hard road, and it had been inside the ring with injuries, and it had been outside the ring for for other reasons. When you finally scaled the mountain, like you did that night in in Atlantic City against Gill, what's what's the kind of feeling 
the next day or the next week is it is it relief that you finally got there does your ambition some somehow disappear a bit because I remember when we talked to, to Glenn McCrory about it he said he he won his title in front of his home crowd epic night all the rest of it massive underdog uh he said all he'd ever wanted to be was a world champion and then once he'd done it he said he just strangely found that he just thought okay I think I've I think I've done. I think I've done this now. He, he just yeah. discovered that he did really want to. That that was it. He did really want. He yeah. did really want to keep going. Same with me. Like I remember, it was almost like the breathing out, like that lasted for, you know, still to this day. Just like thank fuck for that. You know what I mean? Like just because it become an obsession for. Not just for me, just because I like I said to myself when my brother died and I got back into the ring that right, everything I do now will be in his memory, it'll be for him. So I put sort of put myself second. I thought, right, every single title I win, I can dedicate to my brother. And the world title being the, you know, the the last one, the the crowning, defining title. If that's possible, that you know, that's the one where I can sort of say, right, I've done it. I've done it for you, mate. Um, and I've, I've become obsessed with it. And it, like, I, like I said earlier, I would have been so content with just the British Commonwealth and European. I swear to you, I would have, I, I, I just, I just would have been so happy with that. If you'd have said to me when I was a kid, you'd be British Commonwealth European. Ah, oh, where do I sign? You know. Um, but I just. Every time I was, I sat down and said, I wasn't going to fight. I just thought about my brother and thought, oh, come on, come on. And then the Martinez fight, I thought, you know, I, I probably could beat one of the, you know, weaker champions. Um, and not disrespecting Gil, but, he, you know, he wasn't in Martinez's class. Uh, but yeah, if I'm honest, if I'm if I'm honest, I just I became content and you can't be content as a fighter. You just, you know, I compare myself to the fight I was before Gil, to the, per- to the fight I was immediately after, I was a completely different person. You know, um, I was going to use a weird analogy there, but I, I won't. <laughs> I was just going to say like before and after sex. <laughs> <laughs> no, go, go ahead. <laughs> we'll leave it there. We'll, we'll leave it there. But I was just, I was just completely content. But, Look, if I go back to again to Martinez, I earned four four hundred thousand dollars for that fight. For the Gill fight, because I was voluntary, it's one hundred fifty thousand dollars, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And then there's thirty three percent withholding tax and paying Tony and paying all this, blah blah blah. You know, I've got about fifty grand in my pocket. Do you know what I mean? And I'm world champion. And um, you know, my mandatory was Sturm, who I believed I could beat. Um, and it was just, you know, I did, look, look, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to fight anymore. If I'd have burnt the money I did for Stern fight, I never would have fought. I, I promise you now, Matthew or nobody could attempt me out of retirement. I would have never fought ever, ever again, ever again. Um, but what I did think to myself was, right, I've got Sturm in Germany. I didn't give a toss where it was. I travelled all around the world as an amateur. I didn't care. Went to real tough countries. It, I wasn't bothered about where I was fighting. Did not, did not give a toss. Fort Martinez in Atlantic City, going to Germany didn't phase me. I knew the judging, etc., was always going to be against me, but I just thought I could beat him. And I thought to myself, look, though I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm solely doing this for money. I thought with my, 
natural competitive nature, once that bell goes, I'll do everything I, I need to do to win. So I thought that, that that's, that's good enough for me. You know, I, I'll go in there and I'll give it my all because I know that my nature will make me do that. Um, but just, you know, I get a bit of sticks out. Oh, why'd you go to Germany when you was injured? Blah, blah, blah. People, people, if they only knew the state I was in going back to that Belchicum fight when I won the European title, like I had a life and death of him because my body was smashed to pieces. I had two <laughs> bad hips that I didn't, didn't allow me to run. And I'm from the old, as Matt is as well, from the old school where you've got to pound the roads, you've got to do the miles, the stamina, blah, blah, blah. So I, if I'm honest, I didn't, I never thought about replacing the running with anything else. So I didn't run because my, my hips were so smashed to pieces just before I had any operations. And, um, you know, I went into every single fight after that, probably only 75% at best, at best. Um, so it, there was nothing different. Yeah, I, I'd hurt my hip in uh, sparring before that fight, but it was a month before. And I'd done the same thing before, not Gil, uh, before Sparda. Um, so I just thought this is this is what it's going to be for me. You know, if, if I am going to fight again, I'm going to have to fight injured. And, you know, there's also the added pressure of supporters uh, having bought, uh, plane tickets, train tickets, hotels, and you just don't want to let them down. Whereas people say the reverse, you know, you let your supporters down and all that. But it was the opposite. I went into the ring because I didn't want to let them down. But when I look back at uh, that fight and I look back at my career as a whole, I'm just massively... Um, I still pinch myself and I'm content with what I achieved. I, like, I look back at the Sturm fight and I watched it probably three years after the fight happened because I was just, you know, obviously gutted because I believed I could win. And I was proud of myself. I, I was proud of myself. That was the feeling, the overriding emotion that I had when I watched that fight back because I know what agony I was in. Uh, when I went down, I was in so much pain. I cannot tell you, probably the most pain I've ever uh, ever had. Now, I'm not just saying that because I lost. I was in absolute agony. So for me to stand up, just to get to my feet, I thought was incre incredible. To still be letting my hands go and the towel to come in, I just thought, do you know what? I always strived for people to say, do you know what? He was quite a tough bloke, uh, Darren Barker. You know, he was quite... You know, he could get stuck in, he could have it. He was a tough bloke. And I, I don't think I ever got that until the Gill fight. And I just, when I looked back at that Stern fight, I thought, do you know what? You, you're quite a tough bloke. You're quite a tough bloke uh, to, to, to get up and, and to still be throwing punches. So I look back at that fight weirdly and, I, and, I'm, and I'm proud of myself. A funny one when listening to you talk there, it just brought me back. I remember when we were obviously talked about me and you fighting a couple of times. And it took me, and obviously the, the narrative would have been you being the boxer, nice, fast, hand speed combination, but me being the tough Bruce yeah. <laughs> or whatever. And I, and I remember, because it's funny how the media set the narrative. And I remember the, uh, when Hatton fought Mayweather, brother Nazim being interviewed, Nazim Richardson, and uh, they asked him who he thought was going to win. And he said, you know, he said, he goes, well, I'll tell you this. He said, if Floyd Mayweather underestimates Ricky Hatton's ring savvy and his speed and his cuteness, it, it, it'll cost him. He said, but also 
if Ricky Hatton thinks Floyd Mayweather's just some fancy damn boxer and he underest he thinks he can just go in there and rough Floyd Mayweather up, he's gonna come across but Floyd Mayweather didn't get to where he got to without being roughed up or knowing how to deal with that. And I think I, I think it was something you said in one of the build-ups about me if I underestimate your competitor. I remember this. I, I remember this. I do remember this. And it's funny. It's funny how that sticks in my mind. And that, that goes back to what I just said there. Like I always had this, I wouldn't call it a bee in my bonnet, but I just wanted people to know. I wanted to prove to myself, but I wanted people to know that I'm not just this standoff fighter. And I, I know exactly what you're going to say. We was at the press conference and I remember... Um, that being the narrative, you just to come forward, the aggressor and me, the boxer. And I think there was something said about, you know, I think, and you had every right to say that, I think you'd just be too big and strong for me. And uh, I remember saying, don't, don't underestimate my toughness. I, I remember that. It's funny how that sticks out. Of all the things I can't remember, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say, and when you said it, I thought, mm, yeah, in my head, I thought, I won't underestimate your toughness. Mm, in my yeah. own head, I'm thinking, like, I won't underestimate his toughness and his pride and his competitiveness because he's obviously achieved, achieved, he's been achieving since he was a kid through the amateurs and all the way through and all the way here. So, you know, obviously, he is competitive and tough enough. So, in my own head, I'm thinking, I won't be making that mistake. Yeah. And then I also thought, and I might have said this in the press conference, yeah, you don't want to underestimate my speed and my skill and my boxing IQ because I didn't get here by just being tough Ooh. either or something like that. I can't remember the yeah. exact words. It's funny though that that sticks in my mind. That does. Okay, so let's let, let's finish off with a with a quick chat about about life after boxing, basically, because I remember Eddie Heard describing you as as the most happily retired fighter he'd ever met in his life. And I would say that's that that's fairly accurate. Mac, Macklin too. I mean, yeah. Matt had a couple of years maybe where. Um, you know, it wasn't all that easy. I don't think it was ever a complete nightmare, but where it wasn't all that all that easy. Uh, you're working in the media now. You love that gig, doing do the matchroom shows with Chris and, and doing all the other things that you get asked to do. You did a little bit of training with 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 David Allen, but you, you, you stayed in the sport, but on the other side of the ropes. And yeah, you seem to be you seem to be loving it. Yeah, do you know what? I'm, I I I, I pinched myself. When I look back at my career, I got like I won an NABC title at 17 years old, and I was content then. So to to achieve what I did, I'm buzzing with that. So I can park that, and I'm over the moon. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I like I don't I don't know where all the media stuff really started. If I'm deadly honest, you know, you get asked to do something for Sky, go on ringside, then you get asked, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And next thing you know, uh, you got Frank Smith ringing you up saying, do you want to? Do you want to do some stuff on our social? And I, and, uh, I was getting stuck in, like I'd opened a couple of uh, couple of gyms at the time. So I was busy doing that. But I thought, yeah, do you know what? Uh, yeah, I'm up for this. And look, I, I love what I do. I absolutely love it. To just, same with Matt, you know, boxing is my life. I absolutely, like, I can't get enough of it. I love it. I love it. I love the whole, um, you know, every, I love every aspect of it more the technical side of it. I love watching fights from a technical standpoint and, and looking at what fights should and shouldn't be doing. I love that. I love, I love the, you know, I love playing chess and I, I love that uh, mental side of things, you know, the strategy and game plans. I just love it. Boxing is my life. So to be able to uh, work on these shows and be rubbing shoulders with 
you know, just, you know, see you guys and, and see all the different people. Because, look, I don't give a toss what anyone says. Boxing has the best personalities in any walks of life. Like, it's just the, the different people, the different personalities, the stories you hear. So to be involved in that um, is brilliant, you know, brilliant. To be working with Eddie, um, as you know, they're, they're a great company, Matram. They, they look after anyone who's uh on their side with them uh they're good people and uh, yeah i'm 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 very lucky you know outside of that part of my life as well you know just talking before we went live you know i've got um four kids that any wrinkles i've got any lines is all because of them they're just they are my everything you know like they're they're my everything that they yeah like I just, um, it's funny, you know, when I see, I was talking to Joe the other day and, you know, about his boys going to watch him fight. I, don't, like, I can't imagine my kids, uh, like, I think I'd be too soft to have my kids ringside. I'd like, they just seem to have made me a real softy. And I don't think having my kids ringside would have done me any favours because obviously the, my oldest is 10 now. So, uh, she was only three when I boxed, so she would have never gone to boxing. But I think if they, you know, my 10 and 10 year old and six year old, if they were ringside, I don't, I don't think I would have done well. I would have just been looking out of the ring crying. I think like, I'm, a, I'm just a big softy. So I'm in a, I'm in a place in my life where I'm like, I'm, I'm very, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm really happy. Um, I'm still striving, I would say, if I'm deadly honest, I'm still striving for that next. That next, what is that next thing? That next challenge, that next goal. Um, because could it be some more training? Would you no, be interested I, to go back into that? Tra- I would definitely won't be a trainer. I gave that a go, and it was it was hard work, if I'm honest. Um, management potentially. I, I would like to get small stable of fighters. I've actually applied for a manager's license, and I want to be really hands on with it, uh, and have a, a small stable of fighters that you know I help guide them the way I was guided and help them fulfill their dreams. So that's something that may be the, the thing that gets me going again. But, you know, there, there will always, always, till, the, till the, the day I have my last breath, there will always be something missing from my life. Always. Um, it's ju- it was just such a big part of my life, the biggest part of my life. You know, I've always given the sort of the... Uh, description of you know when a bee a queen bee dies and all the other bees are sort of useless they, they have no sort of purpose though I'm very content and happy with everything I achieved there will always be a big void in my life and uh it's just finding that next thing I'm very happy but it's finding what is that next challenge what is it what what is gonna you know keep me mentally stimulated Till I'm an old man, I, I don't know. But uh, like I say, I've got so much to keep me occupied and keep me happy and keep me sane that I'm I'm constantly pinching myself. That that's the challenge, isn't it, Matt? This, I said you two were uh, as, as as happy as any retired fighters I've I've seen or, or or do see. But but the fact is, life will never quite be the same again, and you will always be looking for. Just searching for for something that might that might come close to to what it was like when when you were a fighter. Well, I think what happens 
all men dream, don't they? And, I, and all fighters certainly dream. But I never really dreamed past my own career, as I'm sure. Darren, didn't you dream yeah. of the world title, whatever? And you're chasing that dream. And then it's over. It's like, oh, <laughs> what now? And then it's like you're thinking, well, how, you know. And for me, I think the first year, I was straight into managing Michael Conlon. I was out in America. So I didn't really reflect on it. And I had closure in terms of fighting myself. I didn't, you know, I, those four or five fights that I carried on after Ireland, that actually me and Darren had a good little session in Ireland. He missed about three flights. <laughs> I did. I missed, I missed, I got, I got my third flight home. Yeah, but I lost in Ireland to Highland. I was going to call it a day. And then Eddie calls me and says, do you want to fight Danny Jacobs? And I was like, how much? I was like, yeah, fuck it, why not? Danny Jacobs, I'm cracking up the chin him, you know, blah, 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 whatever. You know, get you back in, didn't happen. But I had a few fights, but those fights gave me the closure. Because even though I got the wins against the likes of well, but who actually went on and won a British title and chance for a world title after it, you know, where I was in that career, you know, I shouldn't have been having a tough fight with Jason Wellborn. Even Brian Rose, again, no disrespect, good fighter, but, you know, it, where I was at my top, it, it, we wouldn't have even fought, you know what I mean? So it, it gave me the closure. But then then you've got to deal with life, life after boxing. Well, what, if I've always been striving, I've always been chasing a goal, yeah. a dream. What now? And, you know, I was obviously, like I had Michael Conlon, I spent a year out in America. But, you know, I think probably about, yeah, I think it was a delayed reaction. It hit me really about probably a year down the line. And, I, and I, maybe it was because I didn't, win the world title. I don't know, maybe, you know, you could feel that little bit, I, I probably was a little bit focusing on what I didn't achieve. I was looking at the glass half yeah. empty. And now, and this is just a reflection by taking myself back, going back to when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, even 1920, when I was pro in my early days, I had to go back there. I remember how I felt then and how I thought about the people that had lived what I've done. And I exactly thought, the same. That. I wouldn't have bit your hand off. I'd have fucking bit your arm off. <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have been broke for yeah. them, you know. And, yeah. And now, so now I don't look at the glass half. Now, now I'm sick of filling up fucking five barrel gallons because the glass has <laughs> overflowed that much, you know. Yeah. And it's just that little shift in perception. Now I'm just so grateful. I can't like, I can't believe it happened sometimes, yeah. and, and it's still happening even now. Commentating with you, Andy, and, and and Darren at the shows, and you know, it's like. It's beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there, mate. Hundred uh, percent. I think we're very similar when we when we talk like that. Just being super content because, like I say, going all the way back, you know, winning that NLBC title, just to be able to say I was a national champion at my age and weight, I was happy enough with that. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so I'm I'm extremely content as is as is Matt. Great to hear. Great to hear. So we'll we'll leave it there because um, Macklin's got Phil and Kirsty coming around to uh, to have a look at his house. He's going on a celebrity edition of Love It or List It. Um, that's not true, but but maybe it could become true in the We're future. <laughs> <laughs> you should see you should see his place, Darren. He's got this big garden with a lake and a gazebo, a bowling green, and a tennis court. It's unbelievable. Um, so uh, <laughs> in the way of a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love to see Phil Spencer and Kirsty also round at Macklin's house. That'd be tremendous. So on a list of things you never thought you'd see, that would be right up at the fucking top. Um, so thanks very much, Darren. This has been great fun. It's taken a long time, but we'll, we'll definitely do it again. Um, and everybody else, thanks, thanks for listening as always. Get over to the YouTube channel if you can. We'll have a little, a little tasty extra with these two that we'll record in a in a minute or two. And usual things, if you can give us a rate 
um, and a review on iTunes. That'd be great. And we'll catch you again next time. Back in town, I said, Jenny Diver, whoa, Suki Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Linger and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.